1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. I'm going to read the whole passage here, so follow along as we read. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being dis disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. In many churches around the world, including ours, verses 23 and through 26 from this passage are read aloud every time we participate in what's referred to here as the Lord's Supper. In chapter 10, it was referred to as the Lord's Table. Same thing. And in speaking of it as the Lord's Supper, we mean that it belongs to the Lord. We're not doing something that we have come up with. We're not doing something that is focused on self. We're saying this is the Lord's Supper. It is what he has instituted. It is consecrated or set apart to the Lord. We're worshiping God. We're seeing him as holy. We're saying, Jesus, you are worthy of my praise and my worship and everything else. And that's why I'm participating in this way. And so this Lord's Supper is to honor the Lord. As Gordon Fee puts it in his commentary, the meal, this Lord's Supper, is uniquely the Lord's own, but eaten by the gathered people of God in the Lord's presence by the Holy Spirit and in Christ's honor. So, we're, we, so we need to have that picture and that perspective clear. It is for the Lord and Him alone, 
done as children of God gather in his name by the power of the Holy Spirit and do all in reverence, awe, and worship of God himself. And we also commonly refer to the Lord's Supper as the communion, since in this act of breaking bread together and drinking from this cup, we are fellowshipping, communing with the Lord and with our brothers and our sisters. So we talked about this a couple of weeks ago to say this is a very important part of what the Lord's Supper is all about. And we're coming back to this point even today. But now in verses 17 through 22, as you read through that section, you may have wondered why is Paul referring to some people going hungry and others getting drunk if they were just eating a small piece of bread and drinking from a small cup of wine? I mean, their tolerance level seems to be pretty low here. Because if you're used to communion the way that we do it, right, you would say, how is this possible? Why, why were they, you know, why was somebody going hungry and why was somebody getting drunk? The difference between the Lord's Supper in the early church and how we administer it during our worship services is that in the early church, the communion was part of a meal. And so there would have been more than one piece of bread and more than one cup of wine available for the meal. And some people were selfishly eating all the food and drinking all the wine to the point that they were getting drunk and others didn't get any food. So the meal that was coming, that was supposed to come, you know, uh, an opportunity for them to come together in this way became a point of division. There was wanton disregard for others in the behavior of some. And the language that is used here, the language that Paul uses also suggests that there was a sociological divide amongst the people. And so you had the wealthy maybe even the owners of the homes in which the believers were meeting as they met from home to home, the wealthy were having a private meal with their friends and finishing all the food and all the drink and so on, while the less privileged were relegated to a public meal where the food was not provided for equally or to everyone and was not accounted for in that way. So they were having these kinds of divisions, these kinds of disagreements. There was a distinction being made between the haves and the have-nots. And as we've seen through the other chapters in Corinthians, Paul is pointing out these errors, these ways in which they are not doing the right thing. And he says, this is not right. Don't even think about doing this like this. You are, you are spending what is of God, or you're taking what is of God, consuming it on yourself, and actually doing the very thing that the Bible is telling you not to do, what the Lord is telling you not to do, right? Now, Paul returns to this reminder of how we should behave towards each other in verses 27 through 34. And he says, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. The Lord's Supper was meant to be shared. Now, in our practice here, I know typically on the first Sunday as we have communion, we also have a fellowship meal, so you could think of it in that regard. But in our context, we come together, we partake of this bread and this cup, and we do that. But, the, but we don't always think about the fact that that sharing, breaking bread together, that coming together, was the whole point was that the Lord's Supper was meant to be this shared experience. 
It was not just to be an individual experience. It was not just you come to communion and take communion. It was, I'm joining with my brothers and my sisters. I'm joining with the local church. I'm joining with the body of Christ as I participate in this Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper was never meant to divide us, but rather it was to represent our unity in Christ as we share as one body in one bread and drink from one cup because of one final sacrifice made for our sake collectively. Jesus had done this for the whole world. He gave his life for the whole world so that when we would come together in the Lord's Supper and remember what he had done and, and commemorate what he had done and participate in this way, we're saying, Lord, I thank you for what you have done and because of that, we will participate together in this Lord's Supper. Right? So as he talks about this, you know, participating in this way, Paul also says, as we are participating in the Lord's Supper, he reminds us in verse 28, he says, examine ourselves, we should examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And he goes on to say in verse 29 that those who do not discern the body of Christ will be judged by the Lord. So he says, examine yourselves, but you must discern, not your sin, but the body of Christ. Meaning what? The emphasis here is not on personal worthiness to participate in the communion, but rather how we relate to our brothers and our sisters and come together to participate in the Lord's Supper in discernment, in knowing where we stand with our brothers and our sisters. So if you look at that and you understand that, we, we in the church have tended to emphasize personal repentance and personal worthiness, or we are not you know, ready, you know, if we're not prepared. We talk about it in those terms, and we say we've, we've emphasized that kind of personal repentance, and we have told even believers not to participate in the Lord's Supper, in the communion, because of unresolved sin in their lives. And we'll say, oh, there's something that needs to be set right in your life, don't participate. Or there's something that needs to be set right in my life, I'm not going to participate. And, and, I, and absolutely, the word of God is to be a, word, a mirror to us. It, it is to reveal our hearts. It is to bring us to repentance before the Lord. It is to convict us. It is to bring cleansing and redemption. And the Lord's Supper is a wonderful opportunity for us to come into that presence of God and say, Lord, because of what you have done, I confess my sin and I receive this redemption from you. And it's no, no better place to do that than the Lord's Supper. But I want to encourage you, as much as we would set ourselves right before the Lord, before participating in the Lord's Supper, the emphasis, emphasis here that Paul is making is on setting our relationships with our other brothers and sisters right before participating in the Lord's Supper. And he says, if you don't do that, you will actually have the judgment of God on you. How many times have we participated in the Lord's Supper without setting right the relationships with a spouse, with a sibling, with a child, with, a, with an uncle, with an aunt, with a friend, with a colleague, whoever it may be. And we have come into the fellowship of what the Lord is describing without actually being in fellowship. 
Maybe we are in fellowship with God. We have set our lives right before the Lord. But we have not established and we have not set that life right with, with others. We have enmity, jealousy, envy, greed, all sorts of things working in us. And then we come and we participate. And the Bible is clear that we have to discern those things and to say, Lord God, let me set things right. Because see, this directive that Paul is describing is in support of Jesus' command in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, when he's teaching on the mountain. He's giving what we refer to as the Beatitudes and going through all of that. Right in the middle of all of that of teaching, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming in worship to God, if you're coming to say, Lord, I bring my life to you, I give you everything, I offer myself to you. And when you are doing that and you're setting up your relationship with the Lord and you're looking heavenward, he says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember, there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift to the Lord. So, it's very interesting that Jesus says your memory has to be activated at that point, not specifically about what the Lord has done, but what you may have done to your brother or your sister. And then go and set that right, and then come back and worship or offer your gift. The Lord is concerned, just as concerned, with reconciliation within his body as he is about our personal reconciliation with him. That has to be something that we pay attention to. So we should regularly examine how we deal with one another and particularly when we are preparing to participate in the Lord's Supper. But this morning, in the remaining time, I want to return to one important phrase in verses 24 and 25. Do this in remembrance. As we have studied in the past, especially in the books of Joshua, Ephesians, Luke, we've gone through those series over these past couple of years. And from what you know from other scriptures, Christian history, Christian tradition, the Christian life is filled with remembrances. The Christian life is filled with these reminders to remember all the time. The Bible is filled with these references. We are constantly reminded to remember what the Lord has done. We are to remember our past estate, our past condition of living in sin. And we are to remember it only in as much as it enables us to realize the contrast of the past condition with our present reality. And so the Bible reminds us to remember. It says, remember where you came from, what you were, where you were. Not to dwell in that, but to say, this is so different from where I am today, from what the Lord has done for me now, how he has transformed me, how he has lifted me out of the miry clay and put my feet on the solid rock. We sing this, we say this, but we are to remember this regularly and to say that this is what the Lord has done for me. And so we are to remember... And because he has done this in our present, we are living under the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. We are to remember what the Lord has said about what is to come. We're reminded of that even in the lighting of this Advent candle or the first week of Advent. We have a hope 
And the hope that the Bible speaks about is not wishful thinking. It is expectant waiting. It is where you say, I am confident that this will happen. Why do you have that kind of hope? How could you have that kind of hope? How of assurance, only because we would look to say, we remember what the Lord has said about what is to come, and therefore I have hope for the future. We are to remember what the Lord has commanded so that we may order our days and live in obedience to and keep in step with the Holy Spirit. We are remembering what the Lord has said in order that we do that. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit, by the, as we keep in step with the, with the Holy Spirit, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to do what? Is to remind us what Jesus taught. It says, you know, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, it's good for me, it's good for you, pardon me, that I go away because when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will remind you of what I've taught you. So this memory, this, this idea of having remembrance of these, these, of the, in these ways is so important. We are to remember how to honor the Lord and to do this by taking captive our thoughts. That's a means of managing our memories, managing our thoughts in that way, so that we would remember what was right and not what was evil. Why are memories so important? Because as the Bible makes it very clear, and you know from your own lives, and you know from the lives of those around you, our memories affect everything. Our memories affect what we remember about past hurts, disappointments, missed expectations, traumas that we have faced, everything that is happening to us, everything that is going on in our lives. You don't have to be very old. You could be five years old. You could be 80 years old. It doesn't matter. Whatever has happened, our memories affect everything in the present. Our memories shape our future. And what we think about and what we decide is the truth, based on our memories, influences what decisions we make, what wisdom we apply, what discernment we have, everything. And so the way that we deal with people, and sometimes you deal with the person and you're very, and you wonder, why is this person dealing with me like this? And it's not because of you. It's because of their memory. They had something in that situation that they're, as they're dealing with you that has triggered a past memory. And because of that past memory, they deal with you in a specific way. So memories are very, very important. And there's a lot more to say about that part of it. So we, which means that we have to pay attention to what we remember. And so based particularly on this passage and based particularly on this idea that we have to pay attention to our memories, I want to state two principles, two principles that should govern how we manage our memories. And the first one is that we remember to reinforce truth. Our memories must be focused on truth. If you are reinforcing a lie, if you keep saying what is not true, that becomes your narrative, your memory. If there's a whole lot of research that has been done about the fact that how you speak about something, how you recount something, then becomes your memory. If those of you who know about this, when they have questioned witnesses to an accident, an accident took place on the road, and there are four people who witnessed it from different corners of that intersection or wherever it may be. 
And every one of them gives a slightly different story because it was their perspective, it was their, their observation, their whatever. And, and it has been so, shown in these kinds of research that if the questioner plants a thought in the mind of the observer, in the mind of the person that is giving their narrative of what has happened, if they say, oh, and when the car flipped over, what did you see next? The car may never have flipped over. But the person who hears that now starts to think that that is what happened and then starts to recount the whole experience. Yes, when the car flipped over, I saw that they crawled out from this, you know, from that side. Uh, this is absolutely, you know, things that have been happening and things that are re well researched in terms of how our memories can be affected in these ways. Our memories can be shaped. Our memories can be unduly influenced. So the caution for us and the reminder for us is we need to then be very careful, very discerning to reinforce the truth. We need to know what is God's truth. What does he say about the situation? What does he say about himself? What does he say about me? What does he say about my decision that I'm about to make? What does he say? What is his truth that underlines this, underlies this situation and is the one that I need to depend on as I move forward? What is his truth? Because the doctor's report and my eyes that I'm, where I observe or what I think I heard or what somebody has told me happened could be misleading. What is God's truth that I need to hold on to? And I need to be able to say, Lord God, the truth that you have spoken and the truth that you have demonstrated builds in a very definite manner. There is a foundation of God's truth that I must know. I must know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him can, would not perish but have eternal life. I must know that foundational truth. And I must know in terms of how he cares for me. And I must know that he calls me his child. And I must know that he has given me the means and the strength and the ability to worship him and to live all my days on this earth as his child his treasured possession. I must know those things. And I have to reinforce those things. I have to speak those things. I have to declare that to somebody else and I have to have others around me who will declare that to me. Rather than somebody who will speak lies or false partial truths, whatever it may be. So it's important for us as a, ch as a church when the Bible says, do this in remembrance, to say, Lord God, it's not just about the Lord's Supper. It's not just when I come together once a month or once a week or whatever it may be. It is that in every opportunity, I would speak the truth and I would have the truth spoken to me. And I will encourage myself in reinforcing, in remembering the truth. You know, all through the Bible, you find these references to God saying, build a memorial, or the people responding and saying, I will build a memorial. Even Jacob, as he was there seeing that vision, what does he do? He builds a memorial right there. And he says, I'm going to come back here. The memorials, those 
things that were set up, very tangible, physical things that were done, whether it was the pile of rocks or something else that was put up there, it was to remind the people, it was to be remembering what the truth of God was. It was always to point us to truth. It was always to say, this is what the Lord has done. He is faithful. And when we are discouraged, when we are depressed, when the circumstances are overwhelming, you need some of those memorials. You need to be able to turn around and look at that and say, oh, I remember what the Lord did. I remember what the Lord did. I remember that he has been faithful. And I, because of this memorial, I can look forward this way into the future. Because of what he has accomplished already, I can be confident that he will do all things for me. That is the truth that we have to reinforce and we have to remember. But this is related, closely related to this next point that I want to make, which is, and this is the important thing that I want to stress this morning, we remember in order to take action. Almost always, when the Bible says remember, it is not just about a mental state of being. It is about taking action. When God remembered his people that were in slavery, he said to Moses, now's the time, go. When God is remembering his covenant to Abraham, he says, at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. When it, it does, by the way, God is not forgetful. There's nothing there that is about the fact that he's somehow missed it and he had a to-do list and, you know, the, and, it, and it beeped on that day and he said, ooh, okay, I better, I, none, none of that. He is, but the way that the Bible is expressing what he is doing, it is saying, when he remembered, he took this action to make it very clear to us that action has to accompany our memory. When we know the truth, you've got to respond to the truth. When you know what needs to be done, the Bible says it is necessary for you to do what you hear, not just to simply hear what you hear, which means that the truth that we remember must lead to action. It must lead to a commitment. It must lead to saying, Lord God, I will put my hand to this that you have called me to. It cannot be just a mental thought. Oh, I hear it, I know it, it's good, it's truth. No. What is it that you're supposed to respond to? When Jesus says, come to the altar, or when you come to the altar, if you remember that you have something against a brother and sister, what's the next step? Go. Take some action. Don't just say, when you're standing there, yeah, yeah, uh, I have something against my brother or my sister. Maybe next week I'll do something about it. Maybe next month. Maybe I'll wait till they come to me. Isn't that our response typically? We remember what is at odds with somebody else and we say, well, how dare they have done this to me? Well, I've done my part. I'll wait till they come to me. I'll wait till they ask for forgiveness. I'll wait till, well, the Lord intervenes. I'll do something that way. But the Bible's not saying don't you know, wait for that. Look to that. Expect that. The Bible's saying, you do what you're supposed to do. Maybe you need to ask forgiveness. Maybe you need to reconcile in some other way. Maybe you need to set something right. Maybe you need to restore. Maybe you need to take an action 
that you have been putting off and the Lord is reminding you, not just so that you can say, yeah, 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 but to say, Lord God, give me the strength, give me the wisdom, let me take an action. I gotta move. I have to act. All through the word of God, action is very, very closely accompanied with this memory, with this reminding, with this act of God to cause us to remember. Now, many times, we are so oblivious to God speaking and the Holy Spirit leading that we ignore these remembrances and just keep going. Right in the middle of the day, when you're in the middle of something else, if somebody comes to mind, don't immediately say, oh, I wonder how they're doing, and then just go up. Maybe the Holy Spirit is prompting you. Maybe you just need to pray for that person at that point. But maybe you need to reach out to them. Maybe you need to call them. Maybe you need to say, you know what? I've let this relationship just wither. And the Lord is reminding me of this person. And I need to go back to them. I need to reach out to them. I need to just be led of the Holy Spirit to be taking the appropriate action. Which means that as we look at all of this, the way that we have to respond to this word and the way that we need to make sure that we are applying the word of God, that is by remembering rightly. Now, here are some, I want to go through a few practical things about this. You have to now think about yourself and assess for yourself. What is it that triggers memories for you? What is it that triggers bad memories for you? What is it that triggers a traumatic experience? You relive it. You become afraid. What is it that invokes shame? What is it that is a memory that you then respond to by trying to take control? In all those circumstances, if you will ask the Holy Spirit to reveal what's going on, what's at the root of this, Lord? Why do I do this? Why am I responding like this? If you will ask the Holy Spirit for the root of what's going on, the Holy Spirit can reveal your heart so you say, oh, this is what's happening. And sometimes it may go way back. It may go way back to your childhood. Or sometimes it may be as recent as last week. But there's something there that triggers these kinds of feelings. And we respond in fear and shame and, and wanting to take control because of these triggers that come in our lives. So the discernment that is necessary and even discerning of our brothers and our sisters is to say, why is this happening? Why is this conflict continuing? Why is this confrontation not getting resolved? And how do I bring that to the Lord? How do I say, Lord God, help me now to set my memory right? Because this trigger is there, I need to now resolve this. Now, I mentioned earlier that God is not forgetful. But the Bible also uses this phrase when it says, He remembers our sins no more. God remembers our sins no more. He casts our sins into the depths of the ocean. He separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And the Bible says He remembers our sins no more. You know what that means for me? You know what that means for us? 
that we can actively ask the Holy Spirit that we will no longer remember these traumatic triggers. That we can say, Lord God, thank you for revealing this to me, but just as you remember my sin no more, help me no longer to keep remembering this incident, this negative thing, this way that this person spoke to me, this disrespect that I've experienced, this rebellion of my child. Let me not be remembering that. Let me not get triggered by that. Let me instead say, Lord God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? What, should you, what do you want me to do to move forward? So there is revealing the triggers, understanding that, and there is an active step of actively forgetting. There are plenty of things that I have had to say in, through my life where I just come to the Lord and I say, Lord, help me to forget this. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do it. Literally, go to the Lord and say, help me to forget this. Help me to remember these things, the truth, what you want, what you're saying, what you're reinforcing. Right? Help me to remember that. Give me a good memory. But help me to forget this. Help me to forget it. I would have to go like digging it out and like, like just make a sincere effort to even remember it anymore. Make it like that. Let it fade. Let it be removed. Let it be actively removed from my way of thinking. If you haven't done that, I encourage you. And I will tell you without a doubt, God answers those kinds of prayers. I've had so many different things where I just simply go, thank you, God, for removing that memory. Literally, for removing that memory. And, and if you asked me about it and if I had to re create it and recollect it and all that. I could probably come back to it. But I can tell you very clearly that there are certain things that I have experienced in my life that are now no longer a vivid memory. I don't wake up in the night thinking about it. I don't have that as, as an active thing. And I encourage you that you would take this practical step. Discern what the trigger is, but then say to the Lord, remove this memory. Help me, Lord, as you did to remember this no more. Then, the next thing, in terms of setting things right, is, or, or remembering rightly, is that you would take the action that is necessary that the Lord is telling you to do, so that you can now create a new memory, a new memorial. Maybe there was this break in the relationship with this person. Maybe there was some sin that was unconfessed. Maybe there was something else that there was a result in what was happening. And now you need to say, Lord God, because of what you are doing and because of how you're living in me, help me to now construct a new memorial. And from this point forward, I will refer to this memorial. I will refer to this day. I'll say on this day. And I can point to some things like that in my life. I know distinctly, oh, on this day, this happened. And from that point forward, things changed. Maybe nothing changed for the people around me. Maybe nothing changed in my circumstances. But I know it changed for me. I know it changed for me. And I can say, oh, that day, on that day, you know, I have this memorial. I have this means of saying, God, you have been at work in me. And you have made something new. That's the promise. That's the hope that we have when we say, Lord God, let this happen. I want to make one more comment about, or one more 
sort of address one more important point. What happens? What happens if you just have bad memory? You don't remember things very well, for whatever reason. What, what happens if you have failing memory with age or sickness or whatever else? You have failing memory. What happens if you have false memories? What happens if you are thinking that something happened and it never even happened like that? What happens in those kind of situations? Maybe there's a physiological reason. Maybe there's a neurological reason. Maybe there's something else. There's a cause for that. Maybe something like that is happening. There could be disease or something else that's causing those things. But as far as is possible for you, live up to what you have already attained. Don't worry about the rest. The Bible tells us to live up to what we have already attained in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 16. And the memory or the, or the, the, tru the truth of that is just, is just this. Don't worry if something is, seems to be failing. Trust in what you know to be true. Keep reinforcing the truth. Keep affirming the Lord. Keep your mind fixed upon Him. Set your mind on things above. There will come all sorts of reasons. There will come all sorts of situations in this fallen world that we live in where our memories may not be as reliable as they should be. But in the middle of it all, keep coming back to the truth. Keep coming back to reinforcing what the Lord has said and live up to what you have attained. You don't need to do anything more. You can trust the Lord. Now, does that mean that it's easy, that it's all solved, that everything is, you know, fine? No. We go through some hellish situations. We go through some very difficult circumstances. For those of you who have family members who sort of struggle with mental health or memory issues, dementia, things of that nature, you know how difficult that can be. But in the middle of it all, we say, Lord, come. I'll look to you. I'll keep my mind fixed on you. I'll encourage others to do the same. I'll be with those that encourage me to do the same. And we will keep looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. All through this portion, even as I started out by saying it's all about the Lord's Supper, which is to give glory to Him and to worship Him and to acknowledge Him and to look to Him and to say, Lord God, this is, this is for your glory, right? All through that, even as we continue in that, even as we continue to do that, what we have been reinforcing in this is let our memories, let our remembrances, let everything that we're doing be only for the glory of God. We've just gone through the portion that said whether you eat or you drink or in everything, give glory to God. This is what the word is reinforcing here. Let your memories, your thoughts, your attitudes, your mind let it be for the glory of God. Let it be fixed on the Lord.